want you to think about this this morning. What is the best team you have ever been a part of? The best team you've ever been a part of. Maybe that takes you back to your youth and you think of uh, a sports team you were on. Uh, Maybe you think of something in your career, a team you were on at work or a missions trip that you went on. What's the best team you've ever been on? And maybe you remember accomplishments that that team had. Maybe you won a state championship in high school and you remember that. But I'm going to guess that when you really think about the best teams you were on, it wasn't so much what you accomplished is that this was the best team. We were unified. We were together win or lose. And I'd go into battle with that group again any time. I think of a mission trip that I went on in, when I was in college to Uganda with the same missionary partner that we have now as a church. And hopefully we'll send some teams over there in the future and I'm going to be straight with you. A mission trip to East Africa is no joke. It's not for the faint of heart. It's just an intense, just kind of a wild place. And so we were over there for six weeks, but it was an amazing time because of the team. Because we were together, we served together, we worked together, we got sick together, we prayed, laughed together, right? I remember that summer coming back home and meeting up with one of my friends who had also gone on a missions trip and his was to New Zealand. And after spending six weeks in Uganda, I'm like, did you have a nice vacation? Like, you know, thinking about where he went compared to what I went, well, that must have been a walk in the park. Well, it wasn't. Why not? Because of the team. Because that team wasn't unified. They were critical of one another. Factions began to form on the team. It wasn't a good experience. And even if you think through, if you've been saved and you've attended uh, various churches throughout your life, uh, when you think about what was your best church experience, it probably depended on the same thing. When it felt unified. It's probably not whether the church was big or small. Probably wasn't really about how gifted the preacher was or how good the programs were. It was, did we feel together or not? And so we should care about the unity of the church. I mean, that's a pragmatic reason because we will enjoy it more, but I want to give us an even better reason why we should care about the unity of the church. And that's simply this, because Jesus Christ does. He cares about the unity, about the togetherness of his people. And that should be one of our highest priorities as well. And we're going to see that as we finish John 17 today. So open your Bibles, please, to John 17, verses 20 through 26 will be our focus today. And we have followed the traditional breakdown of this chapter uh, where first Jesus prays for himself And we saw the main word there was glorify. Uh, Then we looked last week at Jesus praying for his disciples. And we saw the main word there was keep. And today we're going to see Jesus now pray for all believers. And we're going to see the main word is one. Uh, This is really the focus here is on unity. And I think that will be very obvious as we read. So follow along as I read John 17 verses 20 through 26. It says, and this is Jesus praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world." O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So even as we read that, it's not difficult to see what the main idea, what the main thrust of the passage is. He wants all believers to be unified. 
He wants us to be one like he and the Father are one. Uh, That's the highest possible level of unity. And that is his goal for us, his people. And I think it's particularly interesting. Uh, One of the reasons we've spent so much time on this passage, this stretch from John 13 all the way through John 17, and I think why the Apostle John himself uh, devotes about a quarter of his gospel to what happened on one night is that these are Jesus's last words to his disciples. And this is like the final, final word. This is the last word that we will see him now share in the presence of his disciples through this prayer to his father. So I want us to to focus in here and there's just this one clear main point. So we're gonna do something a little different this week. I visited a uh, different life group this week. And they were like, whoa, you're throwing us off, Pastor Ben. We had four points this week. What's up with that? Um, well, this week we're going to have one point, okay? But then there's going to be six things we need to pursue in that point. But the, the one point, the main idea here that we need to do in response to this, point number one, we need to pursue the unity that Jesus prayed for. We need to pursue the unity that Jesus prayed for. Like so many things we've seen, we should say, well, if Jesus wanted that, I want that. If Jesus wants his people to be one, I want his people to be one. And I want to do my part in making that happen. And as we go through this, we're going to see six specific things as we go through verse by verse on what that unity should look like and what are the specific things you should pursue to achieve that unity. And this is so important to Jesus. This is the last thing he leaves his disciples with before the the trouble will start and the arrest happens right here at the beginning of chapter 18. And I referenced this other passage last week, but now I'd like to take our time and actually turn there. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. And this was something as we read through the Bible and our reading through the Bible this year through our revival from the Bible reading program. This was a passage that really stood out to me here at the beginning of Ephesians four. Now, the book of Ephesians is kind of a very simple breakdown. The first three chapters is really all about doctrine. Like, let's just go deep in on the gospel and what it means. And then the last three chapters are kind of, okay, so what? What difference should this make in your life? They're very focused on application. And as we get to the beginning of chapter four, look how it starts. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And if you've read the first three chapters, you're thinking, this is a high calling. You're kind of bracing yourself. Like, what's he going to lay on me as to how to walk worthy? Is he going to say something like, hey, walk worthy, sell everything you have and go be a missionary. Hey, drop out of your job today and just go to seminary and commit to studying the Bible. What is he going to say? Let's look at what he says in verse two with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Hey, walk worthy of this amazing calling. How do you do that? Pursue unity. That's how you do that. That's the emphasis here. So we see Jesus clearly emphasizing the unity of the church. We see it later in the New Testament. This should be on our hearts. I want you to care about the unity of believers. And I want you to do what you can do to protect the unity of believers. And so if you're tracking with me and that is your desire, your your mind should start going to, all right, I want to protect the unity of the church. So what's going to disunify the church? I'm glad that's a very good question. If we want to protect the unity of the church, we should be aware of what's going to threaten the the unity of believers. I've got an answer for that. You might want to write this down. What's going to threaten the unity of the church? You are. That's really the truth. Uh, issues don't divide the church, people do. And I, and I want you to understand, I'm saying this to myself first and foremost. I'm not trying to call out anybody here. I'm saying we need to watch 
ourselves. And we all need to have this mindset, hey, the, the greatest threat to the unity of my church is me. And I wanna make sure I'm doing what Jesus calls me to. Because guess how much control you have over other people? Not much. God is calling us to obey him. And so I want us to now turn back to John 17 and we're gonna go through and we're gonna see these six things that we all need to pursue. But we kind of need to check something at the door here where this is an easy sermon for all of us to hear and be like, so-and-so needs this one. None of that today, okay? We all need to look in the mirror here and see, God, how would I bring disunity with other believers? And would you show me that in my own heart? And so I even want to give you just a few moments right now just to, to quiet your own heart and to go before God and say, God, open my eyes to, to see my own sin and how I can grow in being unified with other believers. So take a moment and then we'll start again in verse 20 and work through this passage together. So there are six things that I want us to see in this passage that we all need to pursue. And the first one we're going to see right there in verse 20, where Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so that helps us to see there's a continuity between what we talked about last week and this week. And even if you had any problems saying, well, I thought you said Jesus is praying is for his disciples, but you kind of took those things and applied them to us, pastor. Well, that's because Jesus does right here. He's saying, hey, all those things I prayed for the disciples, I'm praying them for all believers. And it's also, I hope it was encouraging to the disciples, he assumes that their witness is going to be effective. He's praying like there will be people who will believe through their word. And really that applies all the way down to you and I. Our spiritual heritage is some way connected back. People spend a lot of time and even sometimes a lot of money to research their ancestry and to find out, well, my family, we actually came from this little town. The Blakeys were from this little town in England and you know, so-and-so emigrated to the United States. People spend a lot of time to figure that out. It's gonna be interesting when we get to heaven to kind of learn, hey, what's my spiritual ancestry? I mean, I was saved largely through the influence of my father, my oldest brother, and I've met the man who shared the gospel with my dad. Well, who shared the gospel with him and with him? And how did he get saved? And going all the way back, you know, through and finding the, the godly moms or the outspoken evangelists or whoever it was all throughout. And I bet it's going to all go back and find itself with the disciples who then went and spread the word. And we also know that what they taught was enshrined in the New Testament. And so Jesus is praying specifically, it says, for those who will believe in me through their word. And so this unity that we have, it's based on something. We're unified, really, that we share a belief in Jesus Christ through the word of God that was passed down through the apostles and enshrined in the New Testament. And I think, really, that's summing up, we have a shared belief in these core elements of the gospel. And so the first thing we need to pursue then, as you're taking notes, is a biblical faith there in verse 20. A biblical faith. And again, I think the emphasis here is really on believing in Christ through their word, believing the gospel message, that we are united. We share a belief that we are sinners who are separated from a holy creator God, but in love, he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. And that way is Jesus Christ, the son of God who lived the perfect life, who died on the cross for our sin and who rose again. And we respond to that good news by turning from our sin and putting our trust in Jesus Christ as savior and Lord. That is what our unity is based on. That's what it has to be based on. And knowing that that's the basis for our unity will keep us from a couple different errors we could make. One error is how people use even a passage like this 
And they twist it into a call to dissolve all organizational divisions between the church and just act like, hey, let's just all be one big, happy Christian family. And the problem with that thinking is, okay, at some point, you're going to have to define what is a Christian. What, is, what, what does that mean? And you think about our society, still, even now, about two-thirds of Americans are going to check the I'm a Christian box. Well, that includes everybody that belongs to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's a few of those in the Treasure Valley, right? But are we, hey, there are brothers and sisters, Well, according to the Bible, I think no, because they believe in a different God. They believe in a different Jesus and they believe in a different gospel that is based on their works, not through the finished work of Jesus Christ. They do not believe in Christ through the word that was passed down in the New Testament. There's not unity there because it's not based on the gospel. Over the last several decades, there's been a lot of conversation of like, hey, evangelicals, Protestants, and Catholics, can't we just forget all those things that were said 500 years ago? And can't we just all get along? And while I do not doubt that there are you know, people who might consider themselves Catholics who, when you get down to it, believe I'm a sinner and I need a savior and I, my faith is in Jesus Christ, when you look at the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, it says things like, hey, if you believe in justification by faith alone, you are accursed. You are on your way to hell. Well, I've read Romans and Galatians, and I'm pretty sure they say we're saved by faith alone. So I can't have unity there when the church says what the Bible says is anathema, right? So this should keep us from an era of error of kind of this false ecumenical movement, just saying, hey, let's all get along. When no, it has to be based on the truth. But also, I think Jesus here, he's really talking about a unity that's based on the message of the gospel and a shared faith in Jesus Christ according to scripture. And I do think he's not calling necessarily for some organizational unity amongst all believers everywhere, but it should be observable. That at your work, there might be other people who are believers. They go to a different church than you, but There is a shared faith in Jesus Christ in accordance with the scripture. Or or there might be people in your neighborhood. And even for the world around you, they should be able to see, hey, these people, they might go to different churches, but they're unified. They're together through this shared faith in Jesus Christ. And so another mistake that we can make kind of on an opposite side of the spectrum than the first one of, hey, let's just all uh, get along even with people that don't believe in the gospel. It'll also help us avoid the mistake of really dividing down and and being divisive based on secondary issues or things even farther down the list. And even another mistake that you can make as a believer, and this maybe isn't so much even just within our own church, but with other churches, uh, is you give the impression that that your faith and your church is the only one that gets it. My church does everything right. And you could be a cause of disunity in the body of Christ if you give the impression to another believer, again, we're talking about somebody, hey, they believe in Jesus Christ in accordance with the gospel and they fellowship at a different church. You can be disunifying when you get, oh, you go to that church. Well, I go to Compass Bible Church, right? And you give them impression that we've got it all figured out and their church doesn't know what you're doing. Well, let me tell you, you're overselling our church and you're probably... uh, blasting their church when you shouldn't necessarily do that. And that's where there might be, well, that church does some things a little differently, or there are some doctrines that they believe different things than we do, but there is a core unity. We believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God. We have turned from our sin and put our faith in him, his life, death, and resurrection. And we need to realize, hey, that's my brother. That's my sister. And I need to have a unity with them that's based on the gospel. And really, if we are honest, some of the divisiveness that we experience over, you know, philosophy of ministry or secondary things with other believers, especially at other churches, it's not really, I'm so concerned for the truth. It's more, I'm so concerned that I'm right. There's a word for that. It's arrogance. And really, our our focus has gone from 
I want to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints to I want to be smarter than everybody else. And that is going to be a huge problem for unity. And that's not to downplay issues that aren't you know, necessarily gospel issues. And there might be a time where you feel, you know, I think I should go to a different church based on, you know, there's, there's a difference of, of doctrine or some philosophy, you know, as you move around, there's going to be that point, but there's different ways you can go about doing that. You can go about that in a way that is disunifying and divisive, or you can go away about that that's thankful and, and grateful and respectful. How do we handle even the differences we have about secondary things? We should have a focus on a biblical faith. And that is what our unity is going to be based on. Let's move on to these next few verses. And we see some words that are used a lot. It starts in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And then at the end of verse 22, he says that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. That's interesting. All this, they may be one just as we are one. What is that saying? Well, it reminds me of a phrase that we looked at briefly just last week. We looked at it much more in depth when we were going through John chapter 10. Remember last week, we looked at the passage where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. This is John 10, 27 and following. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now what's that verse saying? Is that like, hey, the deity of Christ right there. Well, I think to some extent it does reflect the deity of Christ. But if you want to go to a verse in the Gospel of John that points out the deity of Christ, this wouldn't even be in my top five. There's many verses all throughout the Gospel that show clearly the deity of Christ. But I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to emphasize here. He's really trying to emphasize we're unified. We are one in our purpose. We are one in that no one is snatching our sheep away from us. And so when we come back to John 17, I and the Father are one. Uh, what is this? We, he wants us to be one in the same way. Does that mean like we're going like to become a part of the, the Trinity? Like what is that saying? No, I don't think it's talking about like kind of this ontological unity. It's a unity really of purpose. And the language of Christ being in the Father and us being in him, it reminded me actually of another passage that we looked at recently, and that's John 15. Remember that image of the vine and the branches? John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And then he commands us in verse four, abide in me and I in you. Sounds starting to sound really familiar to John 17. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As we talked about that, we talked about how that reflects really even an attitude of humility and dependence on Christ, that we are leaning on him, that we are abiding in him. And when we all do that, we will be one. Because when your branch is connected to the vine and so is the person sitting next to you, we are unified because we are all connected through Christ. And that's going to come from an attitude really that wants to abide in him. How can we describe that attitude? For the second point from verses 21 to 23, let's call it a dependent attitude. We will be unified when every single one of us is leaning on Christ, abiding in him, getting our sustenance from the vine. Then we will be unified with each other. We've already mentioned arrogance is a big problem to unity. Well, dependence and humility, relying on God, is going to fight against that. And as he describes these people that are abiding in him, listen in chapter 15 to verses 7 through 11 and ask yourself, do you think these kind of people will be the kind of people that promote unity within a church? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father loved me and so have I loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So let's just think, do you think people that God's word is abiding in them, they have a healthy prayer life, they're they're bearing fruit, they're aware of God's love for them, they're keeping God's commandments and they're full of joy. Do you think those are gonna be the kind of people that promote unity? I think so. I, I think that is the portrait of the kind of people who will promote unity. And when we're not depending on Christ, that's when we're gonna be flustered, that's when we're gonna be frustrated, that's when we're gonna be irritable. But when we are abiding in Christ, when we have that dependent attitude, there's gonna be a peace in our lives that's gonna bubble over to our relationships. When we're calm because we're depending on Christ, it's gonna be so much better. Have you ever done one of those escape room things with a group of people? You know, where you go and you've got the timer and you're trying to get out and figure out all the the clues and everything and all the mystery to get out of the room. It's like the first couple minutes of that, like everybody's having a good time. Hey, check out this thing over here. Oh, cool, look at this over here. You know, we're all just having fun figuring it out. The mood is very different in the last two minutes, right? When the clock is tick, tick, tick. And it's like, how do we figure this out? And you know, this guy starts fiddling with that thing over there. Hey, we already tried that, it doesn't work. Why are you wasting your time on that? Why are you such an idiot, right? It's like, whoa, this just got intense, right? Uh, It's a different attitude because we're not calm, uh, we're not, we're not at peace, we're agitated. And we're not humbly dependent on Christ. Guess what? You're gonna be agitated and that's gonna spill over into your relationships within the church. We need a dependent attitude. So another phrase we need to notice, um, if you go back to verse 21, we talked about that they may be one as you father are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And I think that reflects a lot of the imagery of John 15, but notice the reason why at the end of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Or later, even in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. So why does Jesus want us to be unified and us to be one? Well, two different times, he's basically saying, so that the world may believe. He wants there to be such an obvious unity among Christians that it sends a powerful evangelistic message to a lost world. That they see different people unified and together in a way that makes them say, there must be something legit about what it is that they believe. There must be something true if that group of people can come together like I'm seeing them come together. And even that mission that we have should be another thing that we pursue that helps us be unified. The third thing we need to pursue to pursue this unity is an evangelistic mission. An evangelistic mission. We can't lose sight of what are we here to do? What is the mission of the church? And we draw that from Matthew 28, where Jesus commissioned the disciples to go, therefore, and make more disciples. Our mission is to make disciples. Reaching, teaching, and training is even how that passage breaks it down, how we try to break it down. And so we need to see that, no, the church is not only about evangelism. We're here to build up believers as well, but it is included in our mission that we would see people won to Christ and baptized and put their, making that public profession of their faith in Christ. And we experience division many times when we start to care more about our preferences than we do about the lost people all around us. I met with somebody this week who was, another person moving to Idaho. Have you heard anybody that's doing that? But I met somebody this week and they were sharing just, their journey and all that God had done in their heart. And they shared something that they had read that had convicted them and said that your church is probably either like a cruise ship or a battleship, right? What kind of ship is Compass Bible Church going to be? You think about a cruise ship, right? Everybody there is a customer. I'm paying to be here. My room is not up to my standards. This menu, there's not 
enough option. This, this lobster tail, it wasn't quite fresh enough, right? And, and we start complaining because we're not getting what we think we deserve. A battleship, everybody is on the crew. We've got a mission, we've got a job, let's do it. I've got a place to lie down and sleep, great. I get three squares a day, awesome. Let's get to work. What kind of church are we gonna be? Are you just looking for a cruise ship to kind of, hey, let's high five and have a good time and play some shuffleboard on our way to the kingdom? Or are you here to say, hey, let's get to work. We've got a mission to do. And when we have that cruise ship mentality, there's going to be more division because we're all thinking, am I getting what I want? As opposed to that battleship where it's more, are we accomplishing our mission? That's what we need to be thinking. And also, I think we would have a better perspective if we thought more about just the, the sad situation of those around us. I was complaining about something this week, which already tells you I was in the wrong because God tells us not to complain. But I have a godly wife, and so she reminded me of that. And she also threw in this tidbit, you know, kind of, well, you know, it could be worse. Think about what's going on in Afghanistan. And she had a point there. And I'm not trying to say that to take it lightly. We think about a sad situation, especially as Christians, for thinking about being unified with all believers. Uh, I think the believers in Afghanistan deserve our prayers. And that's something we should take seriously. But that was kind of a helpful gentle kick in the pants that I needed that day, realizing the things that I'm complaining about, if I just step back, it's really not that big of a deal. And I think as Christians, you know, when we step back and we start complaining about some other Christian or another church or something at our church that we don't like, we kind of need to step back and say, okay, okay, okay. But there are thousands of people around me that are headed towards hell right now. That's a bigger deal probably than these other things. And when we lose sight of that evangelistic mission, we're much more prone for infighting or division. And the more committed you are to seeing lost people one to Christ will probably affect your unity. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody that needs to hear it? The more that's in our lives and in our minds, I think the more likely we are to be unified. Now, the next thing is we look at verse 22 We've read that before, but there's a statement in there we really got to kind of scratch our heads a little bit and, and think about. Verse 22 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What is that talking about? And I think in John 17, and even in our passage today, we're going to see glory used to talk about some different things. Because he clearly later in our passage and earlier in verse five, talks about a glory that is yet to come for him. Uh, that he, the veil of his flesh will kind of be removed and he will be glorified at the right hand of the father. But here he is speaking in the past tense. I have given this glory to them. Well, what's that? That gets me thinking back. If you just want to listen to where we started the whole gospel of John, John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So I think in verse 22, he's speaking really of his glory in a revelatory sense, that he has shown them his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, and of his fullness we have all received. And really that's what the Christian life is all about, that we can now see the glory of God. Second Corinthians 4 talks about he has caused the light to shine in our hearts to help us see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or in verse 3 of John 17, he says eternal life is that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Eternal life is really all about knowing God and in that sense, seeing his glory, being reconciled, having your eyes opened to see him. And if that's the focus of our lives, we'll be more unified. So the next thing that we need to pursue is a Godward focus, a Godward focus. This is the big picture. I mean, almost whatever why question you're going to ask, eventually it's going to get back to God's glory. Why did God create the world? For his glory. 
Why are we saved? For his glory. Why does history have so many twists and turns? For his glory. And that's really what energizes the mission of the church. We want people to be reconciled to God so they can behold his glory. And this should be a driving factor in your life, your growth. It's not just about, well, how do I you know, live the Christian life better? The Bible does give us so much practical application. We want our preaching to be practical, but the driver, the motive behind all this is God's glory is my focus. And that is what I'm pursuing. I mean, when God commissioned the prophet Isaiah, he gave him a vision of the angels flying around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It was that vision of God's holiness and his glory that motivated Isaiah to keep going, even as he was doing ministry in a very, very hostile environment. And we've already talked about how our unity has to be based on truth. There's also an element, our unity has to be based on purity because we serve a holy and glorious God. And if we're allowing sin and the opposite of holiness into our lives and into our churches, that's not going to be unifying as well. But we need that Godward focus. The next verse I want us to consider is verse 24, because this speaks, I think, of Jesus's glory in a different sense, because it's very future-focused. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So have the disciples seen his glory? Yes, glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. But at that point, it was still veiled in flesh. Isn't that what the old Christmas song says? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. But now he's saying, God, I want them to see the full thing. I want them to see the glory that you have given me and that they would be with me, the the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And we need to have a shared uh, gratitude that we all have the same eternal destination, beholding the glory of God. So the fifth thing we should pursue to pursue unity is an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. And even as you think about that, I want you to, to look around the room a little bit this morning. Look around the room. And I hope you like what you see. More specifically, I hope you like who you see because you're going to be spending an awful long time with them, right? Eternity. We will be with each other for eternity. And if you did the application, these questions, or you went to a life group and talked through them, one passage you looked up was Revelation 5. What are they singing in heaven? Repeatedly, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's what we're going to be unified in doing when we get to heaven. You're not going to be in heaven thinking, oh, there's that person. We had different opinions about worship music and what sounded good and what songs we should sing and all of that. I don't like them. No, you won't be saying that. You will be saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You won't be saying, oh yeah, there's that pretentious guy that because of that, I never really wanted to reach out to that person. No, you'll be repenting of that and saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And if we thought more about that, we'd realize even so many of the things we start to have problems with people about are no thing at all. Because we're so caught up and can be in the here and now, we start thinking what's going on in my life, in my church, in my community, in my world is the most important thing in the universe when it's just not. When the most important thing in the universe is the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what we will spend eternity doing, glorifying him. And also he's praying that they would see his glory. Well, every time in scripture, somebody sees the glory of Christ, where do they end up? on their faces. And someday when you see the glory of Christ, I think you're going to end up in the same place. And when we stand before Christ, scripture makes clear, even believers, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's no condemnation that we fear, but there will be an evaluation of our lives. And one thing I guarantee none of us will do on that day is point fingers. 
You might be tempted to, but I guarantee the words will not come out of your mouth when you are standing before the glory of Jesus Christ. And he has told you, hey, one of the things I care about more than anything is the unity of believers. So what did you do about that? And even we consider Romans, as far as it depends on you, pursue peace with all people. Did you do that? And you will answer that standing before the glory of Christ. We need that as a part of our eternal perspective. Well, finally, last, we could spend so long on this passage, but we've already been in the Gospel of John for almost two years now. What a great time it has been, but we want to keep it less than 20 years uh, in the Gospel of John. But as you look at kind of the last few verses, especially the end of verse 26, in verse 25 and 26, we see some of these similar themes, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I think that kind of is that first thing. It's a unity based on knowing who Jesus is. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. But then check out this last part, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Or going back to the end of verse 23 again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He wants us to have the same love that the father had for him. We talked about that back in John 15, that that's the, that's the greatest example of love, the love that the father has for the son. There's no greater love than that. And it says that Jesus loves us with that same kind of love. And he's calling us to love each other with that same kind of love. The final thing that we need to pursue is a divine love, a divine love. And as we think through that, another verse I want us to consider is Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three. If you want to turn there or if you just want to listen, but this is similar in ways to Ephesians four, where there's been so much talk about Christ and how glorious he is and what he has done for us. And now it's getting into the application and it's done kind of some negative application of, hey, stop doing these things. But now it's getting to the, okay, These are the things you should start doing. And again, notice what comes first. Starting in verse 12, Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. So we see there, love is the glue that's going to bind all of this together. And scholars ask questions. Hey, what in verse 14, when it says it's binding everything together in perfect harmony, what is that talking about? Is that talking about binding all of us together in perfect harmony? Or is love binding all those other things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, forgiveness? Is love binding all of those things together in harmony? What's it talking about? That's one of those situations where I'm like, both sound really good to me, right? And I think biblically, they're both true. Love is the attribute that binds all those other good attributes together. And love is the glue that really holds the church together. And let's be real. We need some glue to hold all of this together. Because you start putting this many people together, it can turn into a hot mess very fast, right? You, You put this many people in close proximity, so many problems can come up. And one reason is we're not perfect. We're still working on this sanctification thing. We still sin. And every single one of us every day is still battling our selfishness. And so, you know what? You're going to do some selfish things that hurt other people in this church. And even on top of that, even if we had all that together, we also have like a ton of very different personalities represented in this room. We've got extroverts in here who are thinking, I'm getting coffee with a few people from church today. I can't wait. And we've got introverts in here that are like, 
I'm getting coffee with a few people from church today. I need the whole day to gear up for it. And would you pray for me, right? We have that whole spread right here in this room. We have people who love sarcasm and we have people who take everything seriously. That's combustible when you put it together, right? And we, not only that, these different personalities, guess what? You guys have different opinions about just about everything, right? We're united. The basis of our unity is we share a belief, a faith in the truth of the gospel. But then there's so many other things you might think differently about somebody else, things ranging from the somewhat serious to the silly. So we've got different opinions, different personalities, and we're all still struggling with selfishness. That's going to create problems. And the only thing that's gonna hold that all together is love. And I mean, that sounds good. Any secular musician can uh, tell you that it's about love, but what does love mean? And we have to remember, it is not just some emotional Hallmark movie, goosebump, let's get together and feel all right thing. It is a selfless commitment to put others ahead of yourself. That's the heart of biblical love. And that's what we all need to pursue. And that's what's gonna help us do all these other things we see in Colossians 3. It's that love that's gonna help us be compassionate towards others, to be kind, to be humble and and gentle and, and patient with one another and to forgive each other. Again, that that doesn't mean that we ignore sin or problems. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwelling in you rich, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And sometimes that's going to be pretty serious because there's going to be very clear cut, open sin in someone's life that it's, it's very clear. Hey, I'm calling you to repentance from this. And those would be situations that would lead to church discipline when somebody's not repentant. But that's gonna be probably more the rare situation where there's gonna be a lot more of this interpersonal stuff that's gonna happen between you and other people. And you're gonna have to navigate that and love a commitment to their well-being is gonna have to be what, what drives you. Because there's gonna be times where you shouldn't say anything. Whereas Proverbs says, love overlooks a multitude of transgressions. And that's when you can say, you know what? I'm actually more upset because of how my feelings were hurt than I care about this person. So I need to just get my feelings in order and love this person. But there also might be times where it's like, I see this person doing these things and I love this person. And I don't think they realize what they're saying or how they're coming across. And so I'm going to talk to them about it because I love them. And then that's going to affect how you go about talking to them. Because you're not going to come in on your high horse and blow them up. You're going to come in with compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience. Realizing you might share something with somebody and they might not get it right away. Just like people have shared something with you and you haven't gotten it right away. And then there will be times where you have to forgive. And sometimes that's just going to be in your own heart without the person ever even knowing that they offended you. You forgive them. And sometimes it'll, after be, it'll be after a tearful confession where even then it's still hard for you to forgive. If you're holding a grudge against another believer, that's not love. When that one person sends a message in kind of your life group, group chat and you start to eye roll, that's not love. When... Uh, you're gossiping about someone or making fun of someone. That is not love. You need to examine our own hearts. And again, if we're being honest, we need to be real that loving each other with the kind of love that we see from the father to the son, from Jesus to us, that is not easy. That is not natural. How in the world are we going to do that? Well, Hopefully we do it the same way that Jesus did. We're wrapping up John 13 through 17 today. And I want us to go back to the very beginning of that as we wrap up this message to John chapter 13. This was something we looked at months ago now, but how did Jesus wash the stinky feet of his stinking disciples who were all about to abandon him? That's love. And that must not have been easy. How in the world did he do it? Look at John 13, three. Jesus, knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and went on to wash the disciples' feet. In other words, in verse three, he remembered the love that the Father had for him and that he had come from God. He was going back to God. He knew that God loved him and that freed him to love others even when it was hard. How are you gonna love even the people you find difficult, whether it's your your coworker who's a Christian or that person in your life group or the person sitting next to you or your spouse? How are you gonna love them when they're difficult? Ultimately, by remembering the unfailing love that Jesus has for you and being secure in that saying, you know what? I don't ultimately need anything from this person because I have all the love of Christ upon me. And that frees me to not think of myself, but to put this person ahead of me. I know our own experience as a church will be better if we live these things out. But more than just our own benefit, this is what Jesus is calling us to do for his glory. Let's be people that are resolved to pursue these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we all leave here today and meditate on this passage and the things that we have seen from it this afternoon and this week, God, help all of us just to leave here today with a spirit of humility. God, help all of us to honestly and openly go before you And to say with the psalmist, God, search my heart, search my soul. Show me where I'm not loving my brothers. God, show me where I'm letting other things take my focus off of eternity, off of your glory, off of the mission that we have. Show me ways I need to be discerning in basing this unity off of the truth of the gospel and not just off my opinions. God, help all of us. And I pray that you would grow all of us. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the unity that is here and the love that is here. But God, as we grow, help us to grow. Protect us. Help all of us to watch our own hearts, our own actions, God. And as we love each other, I pray that that would be one of the most compelling parts about our witness to a lost world that needs the truth, that they would see a love amongst a a diverse group of people that are unified in the gospel that they don't see anywhere else, that it only affirms the truth of what your word says. God, humble us, use us. We pray that your spirit would work in us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.